So we're very excited today to welcome everyone to our discussion about data. The title of our session is Trust and Data. And we're going to be exploring really this intersection of trust and data, the big data that's out there in claims, et cetera, that's somewhat anonymous, and then the other data that we acquire through communications that we use to build trust. And we're going to be talking about in the context, too, of the research that we do here at National Minority Quality Forum and that we do in collaboration with all of you. So we're just really excited to be able to have this discussion today and have you join us. I wanted to make a few housekeeping points before we get started. First, I guess I should introduce myself. I'm Mary Stover-Murray. I'm the Vice President of NMQF's Collaborative Action Networks. Um, we are going to be having a moderated discussion today, as we do with most of the uh, NMQF Friday webinars, but also there's opportunity for audience Q&A. So we'd ask you to put your questions in the Q&A part, not the chat part, uh, at the bottom of your Zoom um, instructions there. Um, and then also, I want to let everyone know we are recording the session, as you just heard. So the recording will be available uh, next, early next week, as soon as we get it done and posted uh, to the NMQF uh, YouTube channel. And I'll put links into the chat um, for, for that. So without further ado, I want to go ahead and introduce our panelists today. We are so pleased to be joined by Dr. Kevin Alexander. Dr. Alexander is an advanced heart failure trained cardiologist. He's also an assistant professor of cardiovascular medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine, and he has expertise in diagnosing and treating, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm, I'm going to use the abbreviation first, ATTR, but the hard to pronounce name is transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis. And this is a critical yet underdiagnosed cause of heart failure among African-Americans and the elderly. He's conducting extensive research to enhance our understanding of this condition with grant support from the NIH and the American Heart Association, among other sources. And we'll be talking about some of that work today. Jacob Souch is Director of Social Media Analytics at Volt Lab, which is a digital media agency focused on social good. Jacob explores problems from a variety of perspectives and offers quantitative and qualitative frameworks for solutions and holistic insights. He's a dual degree social science graduate of West Virginia University with a minor in statistics. And then Taylor Stair um, may also be familiar to many of you on the call. He's our data analyst at National Minority Quality Forum. He works with our clients and working group members on index development in support of health equity, advocacy, policy, and operations, including ways to build more representative clinical trials. He's also responsible for overseeing much of NMQF's data infrastructure resources, and much of his professional experience is developing data pipelines in service of creating digestible, visual data products for end users. So we're really excited to have this discussion with everyone today. I'm gonna to turn it over in just a second to Dr. Puckrin to make some additional opening remarks, but I also want to welcome Brandon Garrett. Brandon, we started without you, and I tried to introduce the Friday webinar series, but do you want to say a few words? No, no. Thanks so much, Mary. I was running from uh, one meeting to the next, and we know that my, our staff knows that I've been having issues with my laptop here, so I had to go from my phone, but now I'm sure you did a great job, and thanks for everybody for joining us on our Friday webinar. So I will turn it over to Dr. you and Dr. Puckrin. Thanks. Gary, could you introduce why is data so important and how do we look at data uh, at NMQF? Yeah, so thank you, Mary, and really excited. You know, I'm a data geek, so sitting around and talking about data, I could do that all, all day long. Um, the National Minority Quality Forum, our principal mission is about reducing patient risk. You know, we worked for a long time and continue to work on issues related to disparities and making sure uh, that um, not just minority populations, but all populations uh, get access to quality care. And as we look through the data and, and, and been working on this issue, the thing that we came to is that really healthcare is about managing patient risk, mitigating patient risk. 
risk for hospitalizations, risk for emergency room visits, risk for disability, risk for mortality. Um, it's a risk game. Uh, and when you understand that it's a risk game, you also understand that it's it's quantifiable. The risk is quantifiable. Uh, and so, um, uh, and, and that's the lesson uh, that we've learned from the data uh, is that quantifiable means not only can you quantify what happened in the past, uh, but uh, with the data, you can predict the future. Uh, and, um, and that's kind of where uh, the National Minority Quality Forum um, has, has been working. Uh, so we have been collecting health data now for about 20 years. Uh, we have a, a database of over 5 billion patient records. Uh, we collect data on about 160 million lives a year, covering over 72,000 different conditions. Um, that we refer to as structured data. We are understanding um, what people are being diagnosed for, who's treating them, what do their outcomes uh, look like. Uh, and we partner uh, with a lot of patient advocacy groups, organized medicine, because the issue is data is expensive. It's expensive to manage, to store, to analyze, uh, to use. And so um, what we try to be, as I tell everyone, uh, we try to be like the um, statistician at the baseball game. We don't go down on the field and play baseball, uh, but what we try to do is collect the data so people can play money ball, if you uh, know the analogy, um, so that uh, they have the data uh, that helps them understand um, how our healthcare system um, is, is working and managing that risk. And that's the most important part of it, uh, that we're using the data uh, to manage risk. And the important part is managing patient risk. Um, so much of our healthcare system is about managing financial risk uh, that we get confused and, and lose sight of the patient. And that uh, our argument is that um, the, the metrics and tools uh, that we need to use um, have to be around um, outcomes um, for patients. The COVID uh, experience really changed us as everyone else. Um, uh, we had the opportunity through some partnerships uh, with Centene um, to launch a, a clinical study uh, on COVID. It's a five-year study on COVID. Uh, we um, um, uh, collecting uh, 5,000 participants. We have about 4,000 of them now. Uh, and uh, we have doing metabolic panels on them whole genome sequencing, um, trying to understand the impact uh, that COVID had and is having on, on minority and, and rural communities. Um, and we did that with uh, uh, federally qualified uh, health systems in about five states. Uh, and that brought us really close to the action, if you will, uh, because of those FQHCs, they were doing the test, they were doing the vaccines, um, uh, you know, they were not using the therapeutics, unfortunately, uh, but we understood a lot of, of, about them. And what and one of the, the, the real takeaway lessons that um, uh, epiphany moment, if you will, for me, um, was that they were also dealing with a lot of disinformation in their community, disinformation about um, whether you should get tested, whether you should wear a mask, whether you should get vaccinated. I mean, the whole array of things. And um, it's it said to me that one of our challenges is that we're not very good at translating scientific information to the American public to, to give them usable information and information that they could use uh, uh, at the moment they, they actually needed it. Uh, and that led us into the world of social media. Um, uh, uh, be candid, um, uh, social media to me was this opaque thing that was going on out there, uh, but really did not um, in, engage in it. And I realized uh, for NNQF uh, to really uh, go about its mission in terms of reducing patient risk, it needed to be able to talk more broadly to the general public. Uh, and so we developed something that we called AI HealthNet. Uh, the way to understand it, um, it is a network of microsites 
Uh, and so the, the rough analogy, if you think of Facebook, Facebook is about people, uh, we're about ideas. Uh, and what we're trying to do is uh, take very, very complicated ideas, uh, reduce them to very small bites of information uh, that we put on a microsite uh, that allows people to get that information when they need it uh, through a search function, um, an ad that we may put out, some information on their cell phone, it doesn't matter. Uh, and, um, and embedded in that microsite are links to other information. So if they want to have a, a deeper conversation, a deeper learning experience on a topic, um, we take them on that journey, but it's all uh, self-driven, right? We're not imposing any ideas on them. Uh, we're not trying to hold them to a particular website. Uh, it's just there uh, for the moment when they need it. But the thing that's really powerful about, I think, uh, the way we are uh, operationalizing this, it's all on one domain, one platform, right? And so what that means is um, that um, all of the microsites are linked together analytically, uh, and that allows us to pull down information uh, to learn who is looking for what information, how are they looking at, looking forward, What's that journey looking like? Because what's important about all of that is that it helps us find lookalike audiences. It helps us to find uh, others who could use that information as well. And uh, the additional piece of it is those microsites that we're putting out there are not all developed by the National Minority Quality Forum. Um, again, that Facebook analogy uh, we are allowing others to put microsites up on the network, and that allows us to help them find lookalike audiences, because now we're all sharing the data, all sharing the information. And the beauty of that, it allows us to start crowding out the disinformation. You're not going to get rid of disinformation, you have to crowd it out. And the way to crowd it out is with trusted voices linked together, reinforcing the message, helping people to understand why you have to wear the mask, why you have to get vaccinated, why you can use those therapeutics. Um, and, you know, it, and it's repeating the message and that message coming from trusted voices that surround people and protect community from all of that really malevolent disinformation that comes from both abroad and, and um, domestically. Uh, so we're really excited uh, about this effort. And what adds to the power of it is we have all this other data um, that, that we can bring to bear here. We know down at the zip code level, how many people have diabetes, that they're going to the hospital at this rate, or uh, they're not taking their medications or whatever it is. Um, and when you combine um, that structured information with the ability to communicate, now we're entering into the 21st century. Now we're having the capacity uh, to really help communities. And we think this is the way we're going to address health disparities, right? Um, and, and, and mind you, I'm using that, what I would describe as that old term health disparities, because really what we're about is managing patient risk. Uh, and that's the power of what uh, NMQF is about. And we're really excited about this uh, because um, you know, the, 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 the big takeaway uh, for me, and I'll, and I'll constantly repeat this, is that we need to be able to communicate very, very complicated ideas to average Americans um, so that they don't get lost uh, in the noise out there of disinformation that actually puts their lives at risk, uh, that actually destabilizes um, our communities. And so uh, we're, we're hard at work at that. Um, you know, I, I get to talk about it a lot, but it's really our team and folks like Mary and Jacob and Taylor, who you're going to hear from, that are actually doing the hard work uh, of making this happen. Uh, but we think it's the paradigm shift. We think um, we're, um, you know, struggling to bring um, the public health side of, of American healthcare uh, into the 21st century uh, and make it um, so that every patient who comes into the American healthcare system 
understands that the system is operating and is in fact operating um, to lower their risk. So I'm very excited about this. Uh, as I said, you know, we're all about the data uh, and this is a conversation um, that um, hopefully uh, uh, everyone will learn uh, a little bit more about how NMQF is approaching this topic. So uh, Mary, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you so much. Gary, I mean that's a really big vision. I think that you've um, that you've proposed and, and presented us with. So I'm going to start. Um, let's start. If we're going to start with a big vision, let's talk about big data and big data sources. And I'd actually like to start with um, Dr. Alexander. What are the big data sources that can help us explore healthcare and health equity? What is it that you use in your research, and, and what's out there to that? that we use to get started? Uh, sure, I mean, I think with a lot of other sectors in society, the data sources that we have in healthcare, you know, really exploded over the last uh, decade. So, you know, I, for my research, I've kind of focused uh, on more historic data sources. So that being hospital records, claims data, uh, I did some more recent work using the Centers for Disease Control Wonder Database, which uh, records uh, diagnostic codes on death certificates. So it's a way to understand kind of the burden of uh, life-threatening diseases as it relates to uh, geography, count, you know, down to the county level, uh, race and gender. But I think more and more, and you know, I think Dr. Puckrin, it was a great segue. Yeah, I think there's other data sources through social media and other um, uh, venues that I think will become complementary and help us really understand at the patient level uh, factors that lead to disparities. So uh, I think that there's kind of more traditional data sources direct, more directly linked to clinical care, but there's you know more important complementary data as it relates to uh, social media. Thank you. And we're going to get into some of those, some of those as well. I'm going to come back to you in a second to ask you to um, give us an example of how you've been using the Wonder database. Um, but uh, Taylor, maybe you could talk about what is the data that we actually have through NMQF um, and how is it, how is it structured? Sure. Yeah. So, yeah. So NMQF has made, you know, very large investment in uh, the Medicare and Medicaid data. Um, so that's that's very at the, much at the core of you know what we're doing, and we use that data for both academic research, uh, but then also for you know the various indices that we've created, uh, mapping chronic diseases you know down to the zip code level, um, and so there's a lot that can be um, explored within that data. So um, you know we have claims data, um, really anything, um, any condition where there's an ICD code. CPT code for procedures, uh, prescription data for Medicare Part D. Um, those, that's data that we have. And then in addition to that as well, we have uh, data on all the providers that are seeing these patients in these programs. Um, and as mentioned before, you know, these are these programs combined, you know, are nearly 150 million Americans. Uh, so it's a very large, uh, you know, cut of the population. And in addition to those, you know, we're, we're always seeking to add additional data sources as well. So, you know, we're very much interested in including census data, um, including social determinants of health data from various sources. Um, you know, there's a lot of that out there. But then also um, including data sets that include, you know, sites, whether it's um, screening centers for cancer or whether it's clinical trial sites, um, overlaying that on top of the uh, the claims data for the various diseases we're tracking uh, can be a very powerful combination. So, yeah, there's there's a lot of data out there to work with. There certainly is. And then, Jacob, I'm going to ask you to talk about uh, the other data, the social media data that, uh, that Dr. Puckrin started to address as well. Absolutely. I think that the theme that really underlies all of this is that we're building communities. And if you think about social media from the perspective of trust and building communities, um, but you're really getting at the core of these shared characteristics. So one thing that I, I want to kind of posit is that you could look at Twitter as a source of um, patient experience based on what they tweet about, for example. You could learn about maybe symptoms that they're experiencing on a regular basis. And if you take that information and you 
extrapolate that with other um, parameters, you might be able to derive some kind of um, machine learning model that could predict the outcomes for a particular disease like uh, rare diseases and uh, somewhat obscure diseases such as ATDR, um, previously mentioned by Dr. Alexander. Um, another thing I'd like to impress upon you is that when you're thinking about those communities, it's not necessarily about the size. One of the most important characteristics is the engagement within those communities. So we like to look at uh, the number of followers, but have you thought about the number of followers of your followers and what that kind of does for you? So it's really a question of the quality of your community and the links in between them. Um, having a million followers is great, but if you have a million followers that don't really do anything for you, you're kind of limiting yourself in uh, a variety of ways. Thank you very much. And before we go off this more general topic, I think we also want to mention the caveat that all of these fantastic data sources also have limitations. And so maybe just if each of you could touch on one limitation to be keeping in mind with the different um, data sources that we're working with. And I'll start with Dr. Alexander. Sure, I think for the CDC Wonder Database, I mentioned that collects diagnostic codes on death certificates, there's uh, an inherent ascertainment bias, meaning it the, the data being recorded is contingent on uh, the input from the physician filling out that death certificate. And so if there's, particularly for rare or underdiagnosed diseases, there can be a decreased likelihood that someone recognizes that particular cause of death and makes it onto a death certificate. So uh, there can be, uh, I guess, inaccuracies or differences between the true cause of death and what gets recorded on the death certificate, which uh, in some research, some of the research that I did on cardiac amyloidosis was actually helpful. Uh, to, to study that disease, but it's important to keep that in mind when designing a study using that database. Thank you. Taylor? Sure, yeah. So um, another thing that we encounter, you know, at times is completeness of data. Um, it's interesting looking at both the, the Medicare and the Medicaid data sets. You know, there are, there are differences between the two. Um, you know, Medicare is... Um, uh, you know, sort of more of a centralized uh, program, whereas with Medicaid, you've got, you know, 50 plus different um, programs. And so uh, it's, you know, it's, it's not as centralized. And so, you know, there are known holes even within that data where, you know, uh, certain fields such as you know, income or even race in some cases, while they're typically, you know, greater than 90% um, populated, you know, sometimes you do have gaps. And in particular, one thing we found when we when we mapped this data was, you know, in the Medicare or in the Medicaid data set for, uh, you know, 2016, we saw that, you know, Arkansas didn't even show when we mapped it. And so that was kind of an interesting uh, thing that we found. And so, uh, you know, the completeness of the data matters. Um, and, you know, I think of, of COVID-19 data as well. And, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of frustration about the fact that there's been really an inadequate reporting on uh, the racial component uh, to the testing and vaccinations uh, at times. And that's been, you know, challenging when you're trying to, uh, you know, dive into the day more. So the completeness is, uh, can at times be problematic. Thank you. That's very thoughtful, particularly, I think, the difference between different programs, right? Medicare and Medicaid and, and how the data is collected. Jacob, can you touch on limitations? One limitation of social media is that it really is the edge case for a proxy of measuring behavior. Um, you're at the mercy of what uh, data connector or um, algorithm that you're using to collect things. So um, you're going to have different collections from different sources and different um, services. So one issue is really harmonizing those in a common scheme and then making sure that that interpretation can be consistent over time um, and making sure that that uh, interpretation answers the question that you're actually hoping it answers. For example, if you're tracking um, website analysis, you might be thinking that you're tracking um, individual users, but what you have to understand is that un the unit of analysis is actually an IP address. So that changes the interpretation, for example. Um, that's a device. It could have multiple users. It could have um, multiple accounts set up before it actually uh, has that one-to-one -one correspondence between 
an individual's behavior and what's being recorded by my my service. Yeah, you make me think of a situation where my son and I were using the same iPad at one time. And so we would each get um, different kinds of advertisements. So he would get advertisements, you know, for a woman of a certain age, and I would get advertisements designed for, you know, a 10 year old boy at the time. So you can just imagine what those things are. But that really goes to your point about it's a it's a device. It's not a person at the other end of that behavior. So it's worth uh, worth thinking about. Thank you for that. So let's get now that we sort of have an understanding of kind of the big picture of the data uh, sources that are out there and their limitations. Let's talk about some of the applications. So I want to start with a clinical application, which is exploring underdiagnosis. And that's something, Dr. Alexander, you've been working at uh, with ATTR. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about that and, and what does underdiagnosis tell us about disparities or what does it contribute to our understanding of healthcare disparities? Sure. Uh, well, yeah, I'll start with the last part of that. I think uh, looking at patterns of underdiagnosis uh, is important for helping to understand how we, you know, as a medical community, can uh, implement interventions to to improve that disparity. And so, these kind of studies can help you target where the the bottlenecks of the biggest problems are, and focus your attention there. For uh, the disease I study, you know, just briefly a little bit about it. So, um, it, it's it's called transthyretin cardiac amyloidosis, and this is, uh, you know, I would consider, I would, you know, I think for a layperson make an analogy, it's like Alzheimer's of the heart. There's a protein that's building up in the heart, similar to what Alzheimer's does to the brain. And over time, this can cause the heart to get stiffer and lead to congestive heart failure and heart rhythm problems. And so it can be a life-threatening disease. Um, this has been long thought to be a rare disease, but we're increasingly uh, recognizing that this is just really underdiagnosed, particularly the, uh, the, uh, the transthyretin form of this disease. And it, it has a particular uh, high prevalence in the elderly and African-Americans. And so those are you know, groups that historically I think are vulnerable to healthcare disparities and, and underdiagnosis. So kind of, you know, uh, uh, even higher risk group uh, for this type of disease. So I, I do a range of research in cardiac amyloidosis from uh, things in the, in the lab, so molecular studies, but then things at the population level. And so we wanted to just kind of understand for this rare, uh, incompletely understood disease, what are uh, some of the patterns of disparities or underdiagnosis? And so for us, the, the CDC Wonder database was really helpful because we just asked, we did a simple query of looking at the reported amyloidosis mortality over time in the United States over the last 35 years or so. And we looked at the reported death rates uh, for by race, gender, uh, geography. We saw some things that were consistent with what we would have hypothesized that men and African-Americans and older individuals are, uh, had higher reported mortality rates, uh, which is consistent with what we clinically knew about the disease. But what was interesting, particularly interesting was that there was huge heterogeneity in the reported mortality by geography. So when we looked at the state level, there's areas in the upper Midwest and Northeast that have much higher reported mortality rates than the rest of the country. And so, you know, you could hypothesize that this is related to uh, some kind of environmental factor or social factor that, you know, is you know, kind of hard to tease out in this type of data. But what I, you know, our team thought was more likely the case uh, in this scenario was that we're really seeing that ascertainment bias that I mentioned earlier, that in order for amyloidosis to make it onto the death certificate, you had to, the physician had to recognize that as a, as a, as a disease and, and put it on and, and enter that to the, uh, on the death certificate. So if you're not even thinking about amyloidosis, it's not going to make it onto the death certificate. So we looked further at the county level data and what we found was even more striking pattern that within the states, there was huge heterogeneity and the reported mortality. And once we started to look at the individual counties with the highest reported mortality rates, one thing that was consistent was that they were all counties near established amyloidosis centers. So at, you know, over the last few decades, there's been a handful of amyloidosis uh, centers of excellence. Uh, the oldest probably being Mayo Clinic and Boston University, which have been around for over half a century. And so counties around those two areas had much higher reported mortality compared to 
other parts of the country. And so I think that that reflects a higher awareness around places where they had that you know, focus for looking for this disease and highlights that we're probably missing a lot of cases in these other places. And, you know, as good as those centers in Boston and Rochester are, they're probably not you know, detecting every single case. So, you know, it, it shows you that we still have a, a long way to go, but that kind of data starts to, to show that there's certain areas that uh, we can improve on. And by having more healthcare centers that are looking for this and raising awareness among physicians, you know, I suspect that that will lead to improved detection. And did you create just a quick follow on to that? Did you also sort of generate a new research question as you were as you were um, exploring that? Are there did you did you see um, a relationship between where say African American population lives and the dot and the the diagnosis of or the or the death certificate mentioning ATTR as the cause of death? Did you see a relationship there? Yeah, so that, that was an important point. So, and that was another, that's probably another key finding of our, our study was that uh, we saw that death rates were higher among African-Americans. And you, you, you could hypothesize that areas that have high proportion of African-Americans such in the, as in the South, that they would have higher reported amyloidosis mortality rates as, as well. And we saw the exact opposite. So those areas were kind of the highest risk individuals actually have the lowest reporting reported mortality rates. And so that mismatch, I think, further highlights that there's not only a geographic disparity in terms of diagnosis rates, but also a, a racial disparity. And so, you know, I think this and this is where I, and we'll probably talk about this more, but I think in order to tackle these big problems, you need to have collaboration across various sectors. And so, you know, I think this study kind of identified a group of patients or a group of people in regions where they're higher vulnerability to uh, you know, this disease. And so working with uh, medical centers and policymakers in those regions, I think would have the highest impact. And so, you know, that's kind of where, you know, one of my hopes from this type of research is that it can spur that conversation with other stakeholders to, to make uh, positive changes. Thanks. I want to, um, you're right, we're going to come back and talk about collaboration more, but I want to follow now on the, um, uh, the thread um, that you've, we've all brought up a few times now about the, the geographic component uh, of this data and what we can learn from that. So, Taylor, I want to start with you here. Can you talk about the relationship between um, setting well, the geographic parameters, you know, of the data and what's available to us. We've talked about county level, we've talked about zip code level, et cetera. So the first piece is just talk about some of those geographic parameters, but then talk about some of the data issues associated with the uh, geographic settings. Yeah, sure. So um, in indices uh, where we are aggregating, you know, the CMS data, um, you know, we probably have five or six different geographies by which you can, you know, aggregate the data. Um, and obviously being able to aggregate at the zip code level is really important uh, to us um, in that you can get more local um, and a more granular picture of what's happening. Um, one of the limitations that comes with that, particularly with the CMS data set, is that, you know, they have a suppression rule uh, in place and a requirement where if there's any aggregation where there would be fewer than 11 patients showing, we have to suppress that data um, out of a concern for privacy. Um, so that, you know, while that's, that is a good uh, policy to have in place, you know, it's just a, a challenge uh, that comes with working at a lower level, obviously respecting the privacy of, of the patients. Um, but again, having that uh, granularity can be, it can be very helpful. Um, one thing in particular, um, I enjoy with our, so we've created a COVID, uh, COVID index uh, that's publicly available. And so we have, uh, one of the things that I, I like in, uh, about it and that I find to be somewhat unique is that you can uh, view congressional district boundaries, but within that where you actually aggregate the COVID data at the zip code level, so that that gives you some insight into where uh, inside of districts uh, you're seeing uh, you know, differences in the manifestation of COVID. Um, so, so having those, those geogra uh, geographic um, insights is really helpful. Thank you. 
Um, and then I want to talk a little bit about how we see the geographies. So we're sort of talking in very abstract terms about the data and zip codes and stuff, but then how do we, how do we see it? Um, what are the visualization tools available to us? And I want to um, talk to Taylor about that. Um, yeah, let's start with Taylor on that one too. Stay on Taylor. Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of tools obviously for, uh, for viewing the data. Um, and so in addition to the mapping, you know, one of the things when you're working with data is um, it's much easier to understand if you can visualize it, right? Um, so, you know, we have 5 billion records, um, but what does that look like? And, you know, the answer is it doesn't look like anything um, until you sort of find meaning in it. And so being able to map data kind of gives you an instantly digestible, uh, easy to understand view of data. Um, and then so in addition to that, you know, uh, adding other elements like overlaying um, sites on top of the aggregated data gives you a sense of, okay, here's where uh, these diseases manifest, but here's where we have treatment sites or centers of excellence. Um, and so seeing those in relation to each other is very powerful. Um, and then in addition to that, you know, you start to include, um, you know, having graphs and charts and making these things where they all interact with one another and you create a more full picture. Um, and it really can help the exploration process and the learning process accelerate uh, when you don't have to, you know, query data and look through tables and spreadsheets, uh, but you have something that's very digestible. Thank you. And I'm going to come to you in a second, Jacob, but um, Dr. Alexander, did you use a mapping a visualization tool that that helped you to see kind of where the where the um, death records were for ATTR and and the relationship to the diagnosis centers of excellence. Yeah, I mean that was the central figure in our paper. Uh, you know, I think you can do bar graphs and line graphs to look at mortality rates, but you know, to scientific community or lay community, that's still you know pretty abstract. You know, that's when it really struck us when we did a heat map of looking at the reported mortalities and just overlay that onto a, a map of the United States. And, and then we you know, went to the Amyloidosis Foundation website, Amyloidosis Research Consortium website to the established amyloidosis centers and just put stars on the, on the map. And so you could just, you could very clearly see that places that had more stars had higher um, reported mortality or had, uh, in this case, red was kind of, uh, uh, higher mortality rates. So the red states had uh, more more stars for the amyloidosis centers uh, in it. And so you could you know, very you you could look at that picture for a few seconds and, and, and get that message across. So I think that that you know how you represent the data is really important and really powerful. Thank you. Um, Jacob, now I want to come to you and, and and sort of this is the context. We've been talking a lot about the structured data, but as Dr. Alexander mentioned, I think Taylor mentioned too, this is all retrospective data. This is all historical data and it could be a year old, two years old, or you know, even more. It does indicate for us where people are that are living with these conditions. But we've also talked about that the community, it, it gives us some idea of the communities to focus on for whatever our research question is. But the work that you're doing is not going to be retrospective data at all. That's going to be real-time data. So let's talk about community engagement and the ways of using sort of this historical data to drive our real-time uh, initiatives. Absolutely. Um, I think one great example of that um, was previously mentioned by um, Dr. Puckrin. So with the AI HealthNet platform, what we're really doing there is we're creating um, kind of breadcrumbs for our um, our users um, as they navigate through these very particular and very easily digestible um, pieces of information. We're also tracking how they are coming to uh, find these resources geographically and through which uh, service. And so one thing that kind of mirrors what Taylor was talking about for my space is that I can see where people are coming to a microsite geographically, and I can see from which social media campaign uh, they're engaging with. And I can look for discrepancies in where people are signing up, but where are they being exposed? And um, that's incredibly powerful because that can shape my communications further down the road. And all of that is 
uh, enhanced by the fact that it's real time. So that's the real innovation and the real genius of HealthNet as it expands. So I'm going to ask you, because a question has popped up in the q and I'm trying very hard to monitor at the same time. Um, can you just pop in a link to one of the AI HealthNet uh, microsites so that people have an example of what Absolutely. that is while we're, while we're talking? Um, and then um, I wanted to go back just a second, because I'm not sure we covered it a lot in, um, in the earlier talk, just on geography. Did we talk about the data suppression? So two, I have two more sort of areas around, um, around geography. One is on data suppression. And Taylor, I wonder if you could talk about that. What's the, what's the relationship between the geography we're studying and the, um, what, first of all, what is data suppression? Why might data be suppressed? And what's the relationship to the geography? Sure, yeah. So um, I think I did mention earlier, uh, the suppression rule that we have from CMS um, is that at any level where you're aggregating uh, data and you'll end up with fewer than 11 patients, um, you know, we have to hide that count, that number out of privacy concerns. So we often see this at the zip code level because, you know, that is the most granular uh, geography we use. But this can also come into play in other ways. Uh, like when we look at provider data and we want to see uh, the demographics of the patients that they see, oftentimes we notice that uh, for, you know, races non-white patients, you know, if there's not more than 11 being seen by an individual provider, we don't necessarily get that information uh, in the panel. And so um, it is a challenge that, you know, we face when we're working with the data. So again, another understanding of that relationship and maybe a limitation, but the way to mitigate that might be to look at a larger geography. Um, I want to um, also just sort of touch on the same thing uh, with Dr. Alexander, because you've talked about some of the databases you're using, they go down to the county level. And we did get a um, question for the, before the um, session started from, from one of the registrants around sort of all these other sources of data. So we've got some data like the Medicare data that goes down to zip code level, but a lot of the other data around social determinants of health um, is that it is the, the smallest level might be larger than that. It might be county level or it might be um, state level, for example. Can you talk about that a little bit and sort of how you match kind of your question with the geography available to you in the data? Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on, uh, you know, so I'll, I'll just say kind of, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a disease base of focused person. So, you know, I think for common diseases, say coronary artery disease, you could probably still get a lot of granular data just given at, at the small, at the county level, just given the uh, prevalence of the disease. You know, for me with cardiac amyloidosis being rare, it's already a challenge to get any kind of county data. So, you know, we're very fortunate to to get what we did um, from the Wonder database. But I think that that's where you have to look for complementary data sources. And so uh, that can be uh, multi-center observational studies, for example, of these amyloidosis centers, you know, maybe pick, picking a, uh, a range of centers across the country to, to collaborate, which we, we have and others have. And so you, you just have to kind of see what those limitations are. And if you need kind of more granular data, being very deliberate about how, how you go out and collect that. And a lot of times you have to do it prospectively. Um, there might not be a data, a, a historic data source that captures everything that you want. So it requires some foresight and uh, yeah, definitely a challenge. Thank you. So let's talk about, uh, let's go back to Jacob now for some of that ways to gather prospective uh, data. How do we build audiences in the community to sort of receive uh, the data? Dr. Puckern talked about that as well a little bit. Can you uh, give us some insights and maybe some examples of how we're approaching that? Yes, so um, the main um, feature that has to be uh, implemented there is that you have to make each um, item very customized to your audience. So um, you might have several toolkits, you might have several um, versions of the same communication tailored to each audience. Um, one audience could be very medically focused and then you have a more lay audience, but it has to be um, also meeting the, uh, the requirements of the platform that you're on. And it has to be um, 
uh, within the requirements of Twitter, for example. So you have to meet the requirements of the length for a tweet, but you also have to meet the requirements of it being um, comprehensive for your audience. And that's going to vary based on who's looking at it. Um, one good example of uh, a campaign that we did this with is with the Cancer Care Continuum publication via the uh, Diverse Cancer Communities Working Group. Um, if I could sh share my screen briefly. You go. While you're doing that, I'll put some links in the chat. Thank you. So when promoting um, the Diverse uh, Cancer Communities Working Group's uh, publication, we wanted to make sure that all of the stakeholders within the toolkit, so that's the authors and the partners uh, that were contributing to the the manuscript had a very clear understanding of where they stood in terms of their performance and their contributions to the promotion of their work. And so one way you can do that that's kind of unconventional is by treating them in this network analysis. So each of these nodes represents an author or a Twitter user. Uh, many of them are authors, but um, it's just any Twitter user that happened to use the hashtag cancer health equity on the day that I pulled the data. And that gives a very clear picture of what the community of discussion was around the time that we were promoting this manuscript. And interestingly, we had people who said that they were cancer survivors and they were interested in reading more about the literature and that drove the conversation further. But we were able to really see um, some of the insights um, when it came to real insight, real-time insights from a dashboard. So I created this dashboard to support the, pub the, the promotion of the publication um, in real time. And this dashboard shows the number of followers of the, um, the particular con uh, contributor. So in this case, Twitter user. It has to refresh, I apologize. Um, there we go. So each of these, these dots represents a particular user on Twitter, and then we map the number of followers that they have. So we have a very clear picture of who are the bigger players in promoting this, this concept and this topic. Um, at the same time, this is really developed for the, um, the users of, of the toolkit so that they can kind of cross-pollinate existing um, content. Um, all of the actors can come down here and open up a particular tweet and retweet it or um, engage with it. And it really creates this single source of truth so that everybody knows where they stand and they're all kind of held accountable um, for, for their contributions as the campaign grows. Um, that really moves back into um, something that Taylor was bringing up, which was that our analysis of data often has this uh, component of making things more egalitarian. Um, by doing this, we're making this campaign more egalitarian for everyone that wants to engage in it. They have a very clear understanding of where, the, where are we falling behind, where are we really uh, excelling, and how do we um, mitigate those, those limitations. Um, so that's kind of an unconventional approach, but it really proved to be successful in our promotion of um, a manuscript. Thanks. Jacob, oh, is it okay? I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you there because we've only got a few minutes left. I want to get to more of the audience Q and A. But you talked about taking accountability, personal action, and accountability. So we talk a lot about sort of the structured data in the abstract, and we've we've talked about um, the uh, real time that you need to start to develop on your own through community engagement and targeted um, initiatives. But what what is the personal accountability that this kind of, that, that analyzing data, for this type of research can, can lead people to? Um, so Dr. Alexander, I'm gonna start with you. You talked about the ascertainment bias and physicians not maybe being aware to put the actual cause of death in there. So what's, a, what's an accountable action that needs to be taken to help address ascertainment bias? Uh, well, I mean, I think it, it uh, requires a lot of education uh, from the patient level and the physician level. You know, there's a lot of groups interested in this in, in amyloidosis, for example, uh, in academia, patient advocacy, uh, as well as uh, uh, pharma companies. And I think that that's ultimately what will help move the needle in, in terms of understanding um, uh, or improving uh, uh, awareness and, and diagnosis. So. 
you know, I, I think from a, a research standpoint, you're kind of, you know, you're the data you get is the data you get. So, you know, I think that uh, that, the, for example, the Wonder database will always have that inherent uh, bias, which you know, which is fine as long as you you recognize that that limitation. But kind of at a uh, just a societal level, how to improve ascertainment bias, you know, I think it's a widespread education effort. Thank you, and we're accountable for that, right? We need to know how to develop those education initiatives and and work with the right stakeholders. So there's your your beginning theme of collaboration uh, again. Taylor, can you talk a little bit about um, an, an example, say, of of, a, of an actionable, um, I'm not thinking of the right word, of an action one can take accountability for doing based on maybe some of the visualizations that we've got. You gave the example of looking at a map of, the, of a disease population and then where clinical trial site locations are. So having that kind of visualization, what type of insight can that give us that allows us to design an action that we can take and be accountable for? Sure, yeah. So, you know, I think if you're an organization that's trying to decide, you know, which locations uh, you wanna, you know, locate, uh, say a clinical trial or um, some kind of a site, you know, uh, being accountable to yourself in that, you know, being able to use a tool like uh, one of the indices see you know how good of a job that we do in locating this site around where are these patients and um, you know how equitable will the access be to these locations and so I think that's a really important way that you can say oh here's where we've got our current sites and here's where the patients are and you know how good of a job that we do aligning those things um, and then another you know sort of bias that comes into play I think a lot of people you know tend to have a bias that in their locality, they often, I think, maybe overestimate how uh, the quality of certain things, you know, you ask people the quality of education uh, in their school district and they think it's, you know, really high, but they think nationally, you know, not doing as well, things like that. If you can give them that zip code level, that really localized level data, you can, you know, deliver to people, you know, well, here's the reality on the ground and here's, you know, here's what it looks like in your neighborhood and here's the differences between neighborhoods in your city and you can have local accountability in that way so there's a lot of different ways that you can come to accountability um, in the data thank you um so i'm gonna go we've got about eight minutes left i want to just check how we're doing on the q a we have put some examples of links i did my best uh, to put the links into the um chat uh, there was a question about having a link to um, a microsite and toolkits uh, that we have available. So I think we've answered uh, those questions. Um, feel free now in the audience to put in some additional uh, questions. We did get one in advance. Um, and the question that we got was, uh, what data sets that can provide insight into quality of care disparities, such as delayed diagnosis by a specialist for uh, multiple sclerosis, rheumatoid arthritis, and cancer patients, delays in commencing treatment, access to innovative diagnostics and treatments. So we've talked a lot about some of those clinical um, care data sets. Um, is there anything else we need to say more about the data sets? Hopefully the person is, who asked that is still on the line. If you've got a follow-up question, um, you can ask us. What, what I think uh, another piece of that might be are the social determinants of health uh, data sets that might complement these clinical um, data sets and help to provide more of a context why there might be a delay in diagnosis for uh, within a certain geography for example. Um, so maybe um, we'll start again. I might pick on you a little bit, Taylor, and then go to go to Jacob. But Taylor, um, what, what can a social determinant, what's a social determinant of health data set that might help us understand, say, more about um, lung cancer and the type of intervention we might need in a particular geography because of lung cancer. I'm catching you off guard. I know I didn't, I didn't ask you this question in advance, but I'm just trying to think. We've, we've thought about um, some of those different data sets ourselves. Um, so if, if that's not the right one, then what's another example that where, you, where you're aware of overlaying a social determinant of health with a different, um, 
the disease. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, lung cancer is a pretty easy one uh, just because, you know, tobacco use obviously is going to probably be um, a factor that you're going to look at, um, as well as, you know, poverty and education levels um, often, you know, correlate as well. And so, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of known correlations with social determinants of health. Yeah, and we certainly know with tobacco use, particularly even now there's current legislation, I think I saw, you know, the other day, everyone's talking about not just tobacco use, but menthol tobacco use and the legislation around uh, that to address some of the equity issues um, with lung cancer. Jacob, maybe you could touch on um, that same type of question, but from the point of view of disinformation. Um, get, uh, Dr. Puckran had started uh, talking about we need to crowd out uh, disinformation. And so I wonder if you could touch on that a little bit. So um, I think we'll go back to the example of a health net and kind of its power and what it, what the mechanism that really drives it is, is that it is such a tight space to get very high quality and digestible um, information. So um, it's really this question of um, breaking through noise. Um, and I think that ties back into something that I brought up earlier, which is that if you're trying to reach your audience, um, and particularly you're trying to get them to do something, you really have to focus on the quality of their um, actions and the quality of their engagement with, with the, the content. So if you're trying to determine some kind of behavioral characteristic, you're going to want to filter out uh, things that are probably considered noise. So I'm going to try to tie that into what, what Taylor's talking about uh, with um, lung cancer. If you were to look at um, discussions about smoking on social media, you'd probably be able to overlay that and find um, correlations from uh, linguistic insights about language about smoking and the particular um, uh, uses that people have uh, on social media, you'd be able to probably find relations to health outcomes from something as simple as, you know, a textual output on a social media platform. Um, again, that could probably also work with education and any other social determinant of health. Um, but that that um, correlation as a tool is something that that definitely works um, for social media outputs as well as more structured data sets. Thank you. Well, I don't see any more questions from our audience, so I'll put that out last, uh, what is it, last, what? last bell? I'm trying to think of the right, of the right, uh, the right term. It's escaping me, but I know you get it in the bar. <laughs> so um, anyway, last call, I guess, for, for questions. But as folks are thinking of maybe that last question, I'm just going to do a little bit of a round robin and, and um, ask our panelists, what's kind of one thing you'd like people to leave this session with thinking about this relationship of trust and data. And I'll start with Dr. Alexander. Uh, I would say be creative, be collaborative. There's lots of uh, stakeholders, lots of data sets. You know, I think we tend to view things in silos and uh, now it's, it's time to try combining those things and figure out uh, you know, novel ways to, to answer questions. Thank you. Uh, Taylor? Yeah, I'll probably just... Exp we lost you. We lost your audio for a second. Oh, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah, I'll probably expand on that in that, you know, collaboration is super important because there's so much data. Um, and, you know, NMQF cannot, you know, nearly scratch, even begin to scratch the surface on all of the, you know, things that we can find in the data. So it's extremely important that we have people working with us engaging with us in our indices, giving us feedback, you know, being creative, and then, you know, bringing their own data sets and asking their own questions and just being curious on their own. Uh, because, you know, people will learn from us as an organization and we'll learn from them. And, you know, that's really the only way to, to get to the place that we know we all want to be. So. Thank you. And then Jacob, I'll let you wrap it up for us. I think that um, the real power in collaboration is the, the combination of using uh, multiple perspectives in concert um, allows you to unlock insights that you wouldn't find if you had a more narrow or more focused um, perspective. So um, again, looking at social media um, as a, a way to 
connect to more structured data sets, it seems kind of unconventional, but there are going to be questions that you're going to ask from a social media perspective that you would never think to ask from a more structured perspective just because of the inherent biases you come into the space with. So um, I think that, again, AI HealthNet addresses that in a very um, succinct way because everything um, is more um, digestible. It's also more easily um, replicated. It's also more easily engaged with, and that generates more uh, salient questions that get to more um, useful insights. Well, I'm going to let you have the last the last word almost, but what I heard as sort of our, our talking points leaving the conversation are be collaborative, be creative, be curious, and we'll get there with all of the data that's out there. I want to thank our panelists, certainly, for sharing your experiences and your insights and your examples with us. I want to thank our audience for hanging in there with us as well. And I want to wish everyone a happy uh, first almost summer Friday afternoon. Uh, Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for, thanks again.